You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Pastor Steve Fogarty is the president of, of Alpha Crucis College, uh, which is on its way to becoming, a, a, as I said, a, a university. And, and should, should indeed, when it passes that milestone, it will become the first um, Protestant Christian university in the history of our nation. Steve's also a great communicator and a great guy. Why don't we give him a big Centro welcome as he comes this morning, eh? morning. Well, it's a delight to be here. It really is. The best part of my job is going to churches, um, mainly because I don't have any particular stresses when I'm in a church, so that's a good thing. But also it reminds me that our college only exists because of churches um, for two reasons. Many churches around the country and your church in particular support our college and we wouldn't get to where we want to go without your support. And number two, uh, churches are where people are. And people are potential students. So turn to your neighbour and say, you're a potential student. And down the back, there's uh, one of our handsome young men, Chris, uh, next to a stand. And we do have a campus here in Brisbane. In fact, our very first campus, the very first property we ever owned was in Brisbane. Sandra and I went to look at it yesterday in New Farm. It's now a block of flats, maybe 15 or 20 storeys high, and who knows what it's worth. We shouldn't have sold that property. We should have, we should have kept that property. We bought that in 1949. Um, but you, you'll know the college uh, eventually moved to Sydney, but now we've got campuses in every capital city. So we have one here in Brisbane. It's in Wollongabba, in O'Keefe Street. It's actually, at this moment, our best fitted out campus, about to be surpassed by Melbourne, which will be open next month. But for the moment, it's the best fitted out campus in the country. So... Go and talk to Chris about the possibility of studying in one form or another with us. Everything from diploma through to PhD in theology and ministry, in business, in education, in social sciences. We can train you to be a school teacher if you like. Uh, we can get you to CPA uh, accreditation as accountant, or we can our, our degree is recognised by them. So there are all sorts of possibilities. And what we do promise is that if you study with us, uh, we will inculcate you in Christian thinking. Uh, you won't get any divergence between your professional outcomes and your Christian faith. We will tell you that Christian faith is reasonable, rational, and can inform any professional occupation that you want to pursue. And I believe that wholeheartedly. So if you're interested, go down and see Chris. In particular, there's a course just starting in a couple of weeks called Transforming Leadership, which um, leads to a master in leadership. But this is the first four units of a master in leadership. And we're running it as a cohort. We want you to get together with a group of other people and study together for one week every six months for two years. And uh, I promise you it will be a transforming experience for you. One of the textbooks in that is a book called Light a Fire. That's written by me. And, uh, and the fire there is metaphorical for volunteer motivation. So if you're a volunteer in the church or if you're a leader in the church... There's probably some very good insights in the book. Uh, I wrote it by studying churches such as you. In fact, it was my PhD thesis many years ago. And um, many churches have used it around the country. We use it as a textbook. It gives insights into 
why people are motivated to volunteer, why people will continue to volunteer in a church, and the type of leadership behaviour that's more likely to enhance our motivation. So that's also available down the back there uh, for $15, two for 30, and uh, all the proceeds go towards our university vision. In fact, there's a funny thing at the moment going on. Uh, my book's been translated into Finnish, would you believe? Of all languages in the world, Finnish. So, um, so a, a publishing company in Finland are flying me over in September to launch the Finnish version of, uh, of Light of Fire. I don't know what, what it says in Finnish. I have got no idea. All I know is the Finnish language is very long words and very, lots and lots of consonants. So you'll have an interesting title. Well, it is a delight to be with you. I'd like to turn to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, if you would, with me. Philippians chapter 4, I guess it's up here, is it? There it is, there's the first, start, first part of it. And uh, it says this, Rejoice in the Lord always, again I'll say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The promise is of peace, a peace which transcends understanding, which will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's a very pertinent promise because in our society, that's probably the most elusive state of mind, this sense of well-being, of peace. People are after it all the time, aren't they? I want to think about what the Apostle Paul says. He'll help us to experience this peace. Father, I pray as we look at your word uh, that you would speak to us. We don't just want to think about you. We want to encounter you in these few moments of contemplating this passage of your word. So speak to us by your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Peace, elusive. People spend a fortune on it. There are resorts you can go to. There are um, seminars you can go to. You can practice all sorts of Eastern meditation techniques, which all promise to give you peace. And I guess they all deliver a little bit, but a peace which transcends understanding. That's the Apostle's promise. We live in an age where peace is not so evident. In fact, it seems like a uh, angst and anxiety and aggression are on the rise. I don't know where they are, but it feels like they are across our society. I read a story quite a number of years ago now about a little lady who lived in Sydney in one of our inner suburbs, uh, an old sedate suburb, and she'd lived there her entire married life. Her husband had died a few years ago, but for years, for decades, they knew everybody in the street. It was one of those type of suburbs. And Nobody had a bad word about her. Everybody spoke highly of her. But the story in the paper was from the court. And the story was about something she'd done, which was surprising. And what she'd done is she'd killed her neighbour's cat. Killed a cat. Ran over a cat. Flattened the cat. And there was a little bit of a testimony in there. Uh, her, her description of what happened, she said, I got in my 
car that morning to go down to the shop and I was just in the car and I looked in the rear vision mirror and I saw the neighbour's cat on my driveway. And I'm not sure what came over me, but I put the car in reverse and I hit the accelerator as quick as I could. And to my surprise, I hit the cat. I killed the cat. I squashed the cat. I flattened the cat. And why did she do it? And she said, well, this has been such a wonderful street to live in all my life. But a few years ago, my neighbours sold up and the new neighbours were not like the old neighbours. They were younger, they were undisciplined. Where there used to be a beautiful front lawn and gardens, there were half a dozen cars in various states of disrepair parked out the front. The whole front yard had just gone to the dogs. And out the back, the teenage children would make a lot of noise. It seemed like they were on drugs all the time and they'd throw things over my fence and it was just annoying me and annoying me and stressing me out and stressing me out and stressing me out. And to top it all, that cat would come over and relieve itself on my front veranda every day. And it just all came to a head. And I saw the cat in the driveway and I couldn't help myself and I killed the cat. Didn't say whether she felt good after killing the cat or not. The judge took pity on her. He let her off with a warning, said, don't kill any more neighbours' cats. Don't want to see you back here again. And that was the story. I thought, wow, this lady who lived a very ordered, peaceful, calm life, something built up in her to the point where she killed a cat. Have you ever wanted to kill a cat? Have you ever killed a cat? Someone gave me an affirmative nod. I'm not going to identify that person. <laughs> we, uh, we live near the city in Sydney, uh, quite close. I think we live seven kilometres from the GPO. And our college is actually 23 kilometres in Parramatta. So we drive about 16 kilometres out there and we go on a motorway. In fact, they've just opened a brand new tunnel. So it's fabulous. It's about 15 minutes out to the college now from our house. But when we drive on the motorway, my wife, who's a stickler for the rules, always insists that I maintain a safe distance between me and the car in front. And, and do you know what happens when you maintain a safe distance between you and the car in front? Another car pulls in. So you drop back and another car pulls in. And you drop back and another car pulls in. And I've worked out finally that if I take my wife's advice literally, I actually will go backwards. <laughs> I won't ever get to work. It won't happen. I have to really, really concentrate on not getting angry on the road. What about you? It can really get up your nose. And the one thing that keeps me under control is I don't know whether that person in that car is mad and they've got an axe or a crowbar or a gun. So I'll stay alive by staying calm. But the roads can drive you over the top, around the bend. It seems like peace of mind, inner tranquility, peace with other people, is a pretty rare commodity in our society, hard to get a hold of, hard to maintain over a long period of time. It seems there are so many things that can get you anxious and angry and annoyed and aggressive toward other people. In fact, years ago now, it's going to be 20 years ago, there's a, a social researcher, uh, Hugh Mackay, you would have heard of Hugh Mackay, he often has columns in the paper, 
And he wrote a book, I think he called it The Age, or the Age of Anxiety or The Age of Angst, uh, which is the German word for anxiety. And, uh, and he was he's just saying that it seems like the, the pressure points and the instigators of tension in our society are on the rise and we're finding it harder and harder uh, to live in peaceful harmony and cooperation with one another. So peace is a highly valued commodity. In fact, if you can come up with a way of packaging it, I promise you, you'll make a lot of money. A lot of people are making a lot of money falsely promising people peace. But the apostle says peace is available for believers in Jesus Christ. Peace is a possibility for believers in Jesus Christ. A peace which transcends or surpasses all understanding is available for believers in Jesus Christ, but it's not automatic. You'll know that. You've been in church long enough to know that peace is not automatic. Sometimes cats get squashed in church, don't they? There are a few cat squashes in church and there are a few people who cause other people to squash cats in church. So it's not automatic. The apostle gives three pieces of advice. And in a sense, the three pieces of advice in the little passage I read <coughs> summarise his thinking over the whole book. It's almost a snapshot of the book to the Philippians. He says three things. If you want to experience the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, number one, rejoice in the Lord always. Number two, let your gentleness be evident to all of us. And number three, pray. Rejoice, be gentle, pray. The apostle gives that advice. Why? Because the Philippians weren't doing it. That's why. <laughs> so it's pertinent advice to a church. Rejoice, be gentle, pray. Let's think about each of those for a moment. If you want to experience this peace of God, the first thing the apostle says is, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And rejoice includes singing songs of praise and worship like we've done this morning. And if you entered into those wholeheartedly, you will know that it's actually good for you psychologically. You feel better emotionally when you praise and worship God. So there's a therapeutic value to praise and worship. It's not its primary orientation, by the way. Praise and worship is all about exalting the creator of the universe. But you do feel good when you exalt the creator of the universe. So that's part of what the apostle's talking about when he says rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> but there's a little bit more to it. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 1, he says rejoice in the Lord there, almost the same phrase. In fact, he was going to finish the letter there, but being a preacher, he wrote another chapter and a half. But he says back there, rejoice in the Lord. And then in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, we don't place our confidence in the flesh, but we exalt or we boast in Christ Jesus. We don't place our confidence anywhere else. We boast in Christ. We put our confidence firmly in Jesus Christ. And the word boast, exalt, and the word rejoice are from the same root. It's virtually the same word. To rejoice in the Lord <clears throat> is to boast in Jesus Christ. To rejoice in the Lord is to place your confidence firmly in Jesus Christ. To rejoice in the Lord is to make Him the focus of your faith and your trust and your admiration. It's a little more than singing a song. It's an orientation of your inner 
spirit. Rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> Our children are now in their 30s and we have grandchildren. Fortunately, we have three grandchildren who live within a kilometre of us. And unfortunately, two of our grandchildren live in Bangkok where the parents are pastoring a church. So that's a good thing. The churches are benefiting at my cost because two of my grandkids are all the way over there. But when our kids were little, uh, kindergarten, grade one and grade two, they would uh, bring projects home from school. Do you remember this, parents? When kids were little and they'd bring these things home, a sheet of cardboard and uh, things stuck on it or drawings on it. Can you remember these things? Either a piece of art or a piece of science or something like that. And um, what did you do when your kid brought that project home from school? Look, I hope you put it on your fridge. I hope you said, what a fabulous piece of work this is. What a wonderful, because it's not lying when you say these things to your kid. What a wonderful, wonderful thing this is. I don't think I've ever seen anything as good as this in all my life. Did you say that? Oh, shame on you. (laughs) Wow, I I think I see genius here. You've given it your very best effort. Congratulations. Watch out, Pablo Picasso. This is good. I hope you said, I said that. That's why my kids are doing better than yours. I I said that. (laughs) I hope you said that stuff. (laughs) Because at that moment in their life, the most important opinion in the world is yours. At that moment in their life, the thing they really want is your attention and your affirmation. Real, not just, oh, yeah, good, and keep reading the paper. They want your attention. They want to know that you think they're doing well. I was walking through the street of Brisbane last night and I heard a little boy say to what I presume was his dad, um, do you think, Dad, do you think I'd be better at playing um, American football or, uh, or rugby on my whatever game he's got. So he's asking Dad to say which one he's going to be better at. And the question was really a good question. Do you think, Dad, I'd be better at this one or better at that one? And Dad gave one of those really boring, throwaway, non-involved answers, something like, oh, I don't know. I thought, you idiot. Um, you should have said you'll be best at both. You should have got interested in the kid in his question at that moment in time. Just for a certain point in their life, your, your opinion's important. And you should take advantage of that because they'll grow up and they'll become teenagers and you're an idiot. It's true. Fortunately, later on, they'll get married and have children of their own and you become a human again and they become human again and your opinion's valuable again. Rejoice in Jesus. Just like a little kid would bring their project home to you as a parent and the only opinion that mattered is your opinion. That's what the apostle means. Make the opinion of Jesus more important than any other opinion in the room, any other opinion in your life. You imagine if the only thing that really matters is that you feel that you are glorifying Jesus Christ. The only thing that really matters is that you feel you're you're living a life that reflects his will for you. Imagine how much anxiety that's going to take out of your life. Because you spend half your life wondering what everyone else thinks. Who cares? What does Jesus think? Rejoice in the Lord and experience the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. He then goes on and says, 
Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. That first piece of advice, rejoice, is about your, your inner state. But the second piece of advice is about how you're getting on with the rest of us. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And it's really practical advice to the Philippians because if you read verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, you'll find that two ladies in the church, two stalwarts of the church, perhaps even two of the founding members of the church, Yodia and Syntyche, are having a fight. And Paul says to Yodia and Syntyche, I urge you to get along with each other. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Practice peace with one another. The Lord is near. And if you go back to the start of chapter 2, you'll find the apostle says that you should live your life in such a way as you are elevating the interests of others above your own interests. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, he talks about it. He says, with all the blessings you've received from God in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, use these things not for yourself, Use these things to serve one another. The Lord is near. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Have this mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Let Jesus Christ be your example, who being in very nature God, considered equality with God, not something to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself and became a man and lived his human life and died on our behalf and was raised again by the Father and seats at his right hand. But the moral lesson there is that God became man in Jesus Christ and served us. God became man in Jesus Christ and lived a life that was focused on the good of others. And the apostle says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Live a life that reflects Jesus Christ. The Lord is near. Imitate Christ as you live among the rest of us. I grew up in Perth in the uh, 1960s and the 1970s and Perth is a Aussie rules city in case you didn't know. It, it really is passionately Aussie rules and uh, I used to break for East Fremantle, I still do, in the waffle. But in the late 60s and early 70s, there was a footballer called Barry Cable and he played for Perth, the Demons, the Red and the Black. And I didn't like that team. But you know, for a period of my life, I had a red and black jumper with number two on the back because that was Barry Cable's number. And he was this wonderful footballer. If you know Aussie rules, a good footballer can kick either foot, can handball either hand, is perfectly balanced across their body. And more important than all that, knows how to read the play. It's one of those games, it's not as structured as a rugby code, so you have to be able to read the play, and the really great players can read where the ball's going ahead of time. And he was just fabulous at this particular skill. He went over and played for North Melbourne for many years, and uh, a great footballer. And if you were to go around Perth about 1970, 1971, 72, I reckon you would have seen hundreds of kids with a red and black jumper with the number two on the back. Why? Because we all wanted to be like... Barry Cable, because he exemplified what we valued. He was the perfect footballer. He was an Indigenous man, actually, shorter than me with blonde hair. Barry Cable, fabulous footballer. I met him once. In those days, footballers had to have jobs. And he was the manager of our local swimming pool. 
And so we went down the pool for swimming lessons, and there he was. And my mum, who's the most gregarious person, just went up and starts talking to him and dragged me along. And she talked and talked and then gave me a chance to talk, and I couldn't say a word in the presence of greatness. I just sat there and looked stupid. Uh, but as soon as he broke off the conversation to go and do what he was going to do, I climbed up the top of the high diving board and jumped off to show that I was indeed a hero, uh, like Barry. I don't know whether he noticed me. I'm not sure. But I remember the desire to be like Barry Cable, the desire to be able to kick both feet, handball, both hands, read the play like Barry Cable, and me and hundreds of other little boys. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. This life is a life of seeking to imitate Christ. I don't know whether you picked up on it yet. This life is a life of seeking to imitate Christ. In fact, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that God is doing something in you. It says that he's transforming you from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. You are being changed to be like Jesus Christ. In a sense, he's our destination. He's the true human, the only human who's lived this life the way God intended it. Tempted in every way like you and I, yet without sin, he's our possibility. And God the Holy Spirit works in the life of Christian believers to make us more like Jesus Christ. If you're a brand new Christian, you can kill cats. But if you've been here a while, you shouldn't be killing cats. You should be helping people not to kill cats. You should be showing us the quality and the virtue and the love of Jesus Christ. We should see change in your life. The Apostle John says that one day we will see Jesus. One day we will stand before him and we will see him. And the Apostle says, and we will be like him. This whole life is focused on God changing us to more fully reflect Jesus Christ. And just like all those little boys in 1970 Perth wanted to be like Barry Cable, all the rest of us should be wanting to be like Jesus Christ. And if your gentleness is evident to all, you will experience peace and we will know peace as a group. The third bit of advice he gives is, don't be anxious, but pray. Don't be anxious, but pray. You see, the first bit of advice, rejoice, can actually help you to fix up your, your psychological issues. It can actually help you emotionally because you're focused on the approval of Jesus rather than anything else. So you're not so caught up with what other people think all the time. A lot of anxiety has gone out of your life just by doing that. And the second piece of advice helps a lot as well because suddenly we're not having all these silly little conflicts as we kill each other's cats. We're getting on better because we're seeking to imitate Jesus Christ. But having done both of those very practical things, the reality is, and you and I both know it, bad things happen to good people. Things come that we can't control. Life delivers terrible circumstances. Sometimes it's not our fault. It can be health, it can be financial, it can be relational, it can be individual, it can be corporate. Sometimes dreadful things happen. What do you do when you face a circumstance that you can't control, you can't rectify, and it's not good? It's not what you want. The apostle says you do one thing. You turn to God in prayer. 
you bring your problems, your anxieties, your very real dilemmas to God in prayer with praise and with supplication. He's almost, he's almost voicing the words of Jesus. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, why be anxious? Why run around like the Gentiles? Be concerned about what shall I eat or what shall I wear or where shall I live? Why be so concerned about these things? Your heavenly Father knows all about you. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the grass of the field. He clothes these things. He looks after them. Won't he also look after you? And if you ask him for a fish, will he give you a snake? If you ask him for bread, will he give you a rock? No. He hears the prayers of his children and he responds to the prayers of his children. He hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. When faced with overwhelming situation, pray. I heard someone once say that uh, prayer and anxiety are like water and fire. You put water on fire and you extinguish the fire. You put prayer on anxiety and you extinguish the anxiety. There's a great story in the book of Daniel about Daniel and Darius. And Daniel would pray publicly three times a day. He was in exile, brought in as a captive, but exalted within the kingdom to a place of great prominence. And in that place of great prominence, he maintained a faithful allegiance to Yahweh. And he would pray three times a day publicly. And he had a lot of enemies. They wanted to bring him down. They couldn't bring him down because his character was above reproach. But they thought, here's a way. Let's get the king to pass a new rule. You can't pray to anyone except the king. And they got the rule passed because kings are normally vain. And the king thought, that's a good idea. And what did Daniel do the next morning? He went out and prayed, as he'd always done. He would not compromise his allegiance to Yahweh for anything else. And so what was the consequence? He got dragged before the king and told, you've broken the law, the consequence is death. What will you do, Daniel? And he says, I won't change. I won't back down. And so you know the story. Daniel is thrown into a lion's den. Read it carefully. It's a fascinating night that occurs. Daniel is in the lion's den and the king goes home to his royal palace. And we're told that that night in the royal palace, the king didn't get a wink of sleep. He was up all night. He was worried. He was concerned. Probably he felt guilt for what he'd done. And as soon as the sun came up, the king raced down to where Daniel had been incarcerated with the lions and cries out, Daniel, Daniel, are you there? And Daniel says, yes, I am king. How can I help you? You can be the king in a royal palace and be afflicted with anxiety, or you can be Daniel in a lion's den and have no anxiety. The difference is prayer. Prayer can help you overcome anxiety. Prayer can enable you to experience the peace of God which transcends all understanding. So, this advice is given to believers, just like you and I, because believers needed to hear this advice, because they weren't practising it. And the Apostle promises the peace of God, which surpasses 
all understanding. He promises that it will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And the picture is of a, I think they call it a phalanx, a group of Roman soldiers who get their shields together like this and have their spears sticking out through the shields and supposedly an impenetrable barrier guarding something. The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind like that Roman protection in Christ Jesus. It's fabulous, almost impossible to believe that you can experience this deep inner peace which translates into peace with the rest of us and the capacity to cope with a world that seems not to be able to capture peace. The peace of God is the promise to you who believe in Jesus Christ. If, number one, you rejoice in the Lord. Number two, you let your gentleness be evident to all. And number three, you pray in the face of difficult circumstances. Do you believe it? Father, I pray for each one of us. I pray this morning that the promise of this passage might be our reality. I pray this morning that we might indeed know the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, that we might know it guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And I pray beyond this, Father, that each of us might be able to reflect at this moment and consider what is the barrier to peace in our life. Help us, I pray, to rejoice in you. Help us, I pray, to be gentle to one another. Help us, I pray, to make prayer our instinct. Thank you, Father. Just for a moment, let's make this a place of reflection and decision. And let me ask two simple questions, and please just close your eyes and make it a private place. Two questions. The first one is, do you know Jesus Christ? Because this promise is for believers in Jesus Christ. Everything I've said here today doesn't work except that you believe in Jesus Christ. It won't work except that His grace and His power is at work in your life because you believe in Him. So this morning, you're here in church, nearly everyone here does believe in Jesus Christ, but do you? Can you point to the moment where you definitely made the decision to put your faith in Jesus Christ and to make that the most important thing in your life? And if you haven't and you'd like to, would you just raise your hand very gently and very quietly and show me and say, yeah, I want to believe in Jesus Christ. I need to believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you. Decision's the critical thing. Don't be passive. I need to believe in Jesus Christ. Does anyone else want to raise their hand this morning? Say, yeah. Great. Leads me to my second question. You do believe in Jesus Christ, but the advice this morning was pertinent to you. 
you do believe in Jesus Christ, but you're not experiencing this peace of God which transcends all understanding. I think the answer for you is in the advice the apostle gave us this morning. But you still need to say, yeah, I need to respond. It's time for a change. It's time to let God's Holy Spirit help me. So if you need this morning to experience this peace of God again, afresh and you, indeed, if you need to change a little bit in the way you're behaving to experience that peace, would you just lift your hand and say, yeah, that's me. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. If I'm honest, I can put my hand up there too. Father, I pray for each one of us. I pray for these who raised their hand, for the lady who put a hand up in regard to faith in Christ. And I pray uh, that at this moment and in the next few moments, she would start to sense your presence, your grace, which forgives sin and brings cleansing and imparts faith. And I pray for the rest of us who raised our hands regarding peace. Father, if it's an action we need to take, give us the strength to take that action, a change. And if it's just a greater impartation of your grace to deal with difficult circumstances, I pray just now by your Spirit that grace would flow into their hearts and they would experience faith, hope and peace. I ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 